Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 18th, 2011. It's a balmy 36 degrees here in Indianapolis. It's too hot. Burning up. It's weird. You get used to Midwestern winters and, you know, it gets into the 30s and you're breaking out the suntan lotion. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is... No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we like to cover it here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and uh, and give, well, some kind of a refutation, a biblical refutation uh, to some of the bizarre things being said out there. And um, I, you know what's so funny? I feel discombobulated. I, I, I'm perfectly healthy. I, I'm, I'm no longer suffering from the uh, travails of... Um, a food poisoning or, you know, nothing like that. It, the, the issue with me is, is that I've been so steeped in reading, editing, writing, all this kind of stuff that uh, I, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm very productive right now. What I'm working on, just so you know, we're, uh, we're getting ready to launch a, a new version of uh, kind of a, not exactly a pirate Christian radio journal, but it's called The Letter of Mark. And uh, it's basically, um, it, it's going to be, it'll, it'll be a monthly, that's the goal here. And uh, it's it's going to just have some just great content. Uh, articles from, you know, from long forgotten, uh, long past uh, eras of Christianity. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a sermon that I'm publishing from an 1898 edition of Concordia, uh, well, actually, Theological Monthly, before it was called Concordia Theological Monthly. It was published by Concordia Publishing House. I have run across a fantastic resource that uh, I will be taking stuff from and lifting heavily from, uh, you know, in the months and years ahead. And I uh, it's a it's an 1876 Christian dogmatics text uh, published uh, by a confessional Lutheran at uh, from Gettysburg Theological Seminary in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and got last name was Schmid, and it's uh, referred to as Schmid's dogmatics, and um, the oh, it's just brilliant. This guy has I mean he's taken some of the some of the most amazing quotes from dist- different 
uh, uh, doctrinal dogmatics texts from uh, Lutheran orthodoxy. Uh, this is prior to the rise of Lutheran pietism. Yeah, and I'm not a fan of Lutheran pietism at all. I whoa, what a train wreck that was. Anyway, um, he, so Schmidt is uh, one of these guys, and uh, he contemporary of CFW Walther. In fact, uh, in the edition that I have, Walther, um, you know, as you know, it, it, he's mentioned in one of the uh, introductions to uh, Schmidt's. Uh, uh, dogmatics and uh, oh man is this just great stuff and so uh, I hopefully will be releasing this before the well I don't want to I don't want to well I'm pushing for uh, by the end of the week that's my goal is to get it up by uh, Friday's uh, podcast and uh, if in order to get it uh, you're you, you'll you, you'll need to either subscribe via iTunes or uh, I'll make a link available at the um, at the Fighting for the Faith website for downloading it, and it'll be available in both PDF and EPUB. And uh, you're going EPUB? Yes, it's going to be available in EPUB, and I may even be able to make it available in Kindle at a later time. But uh, I don't know if I'll be able to get the Kindle edition, uh, you know, up and ready before. Uh, the end of the week, and uh, this is kind of like a first installment kind of stuff. So I, I don't personally, I haven't written any. Well, I t- take it back. I've done some editing and stuff in there. I've rewritten parts of uh, Luther's small called articles and uh, retooled the focus, not against uh, uh, Roman uh, Catholicism, uh, the Papists, if you would, but against um, <clears throat> some of the false doctrine being bandied about by. Uh, purpose-driven, seeker-driven, and prosperity-type folk. Uh, so, you know, you know, kind of the errors of Americanized evangelicalism, you know. So it, it, that's part of this. I mean, that, that does some good stuff. Uh, so anyway, uh, just, you know, I, I want to let you, that's what I've been working on, and uh, we're finally ready to release this thing. And so you, uh, the idea with the EPUB reader, if, if you have... Uh, if you have an iPad, an iPhone, and you have the iBooks uh, format, or if you uh, um, you have one of those uh, you know the software for reading Nook uh, type things, and the idea is that if you have an e-reader, uh, you can uh, uh, view it that way. And I don't know if you all know this, but uh, if you own an iPad and um, you uh, and you use iBooks on there. Uh, the iBooks program does read PDFs, so there's going to be a PDF version of it. There's going to be an EPUB version of it. Hopefully, a Kindle version uh, will follow not too long after that. So, I mean, I, I, I'm excited because uh, this is going to be a resource for a more in-depth type of uh, teaching. That you know, there'll be resources in there that you can then use. Uh, you know, f- you know, for bi- biblical study, uh, study in doctrine and theology, dogmatics, and things like that. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, where we're doing, we're having to do polemical work here at uh, on the radio program on a regular basis. Uh, this uh, letter of Mark Journal will uh, give me an avenue towards not doing polemics, but uh, doing more uh, along the lines of you know providing you with resources so that you you know that you can be catechized well catechized even if you're not a Lutheran uh, into the uh, the the major doctrines of historic uh, the historic Orthodox Christian faith also known as Catholicism with a small C and uh, you're going I don't like that word yeah I know I I it took me a while to get used to it too but that's really what you know what Christians are, and uh, and Lutherans, I think, uh, are more quick to embrace this idea that um, 
that I'm an, you know, I consider myself to be an evangelical Catholic, uh, you know, which is kind of a bizarre way of looking at it. But, um, you know, that anyway, let's just say it this way, that uh, when I read the patristics, when I read the writings of the early church fathers and the history of the early Christian church, um, I see a bunch of Lutherans, you know, you know, back then, that you know, even before Luther, because Luther is he himself was an evangelical Catholic, and uh, you know, so that's maybe that's just way too much information, just you know, <laughs> my own delusions here. Anyway, um, so you know, the, the look forward to it. I will be announcing it when we're ready to uh, when we when we uh, hit the go button on this thing. And I'm excited, just ridiculously excited. Have I mentioned the fact that I'm excited? So uh, that's what we're going to be working on here, and that's what I've been working on. So as a result of it, my brain is like uh, is divided between program prep and and this other stuff that I've been working on, as if my brain wasn't divided enough. But <laughs> just <clears throat> anyway, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Uh, we're going to ease into the program um, today with. Um, Something to feast your ears upon. Um, oh man, I, I, I am looking at my computer screen right now, and I, I've got a YouTube video paused, and it looks like Ma and Pa Kettle. Um, and I, this is the inside of a church, so this is you know this is kind of one of those small, um, tiny, maybe fundamentalist Baptist type churches. And uh, this is, uh, anyway, the name of the uh, YouTube video, if you haven't seen it, is entitled The Sarah Palin Battle Hymn. And I, I am not kidding. Uh, when you looking at the video here, um, you got uh, a couple that is obviously um, chronologically challenged. And what I mean by that is they're, they're farther along in the years than even I am. And um, they're in a church. The uh, the guy who's going to be doing the singing is actually standing behind the pulpit, and in front of him is uh, the communion altar, um, um, you know, with with the you know the the table that says "This do in remembrance of me" with an open Bible. The Bible is wide open, so and there's a, you can see that the bottom of a cross behind them. So this is in a church, and. Um, this um, falls under the category of things that you should never do in church. Yeah, um, and I don't care what your politics are. Yeah, no. The the reason we go to church ain't to be hearing you sing songs about your favorite politician. I don't care if your favorite politician is Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama uh, or Sarah Palin or any, you know, yeah, no, no, we don't sing praises to our politicians in church. So maybe what I should do is just uh, cue this up so that you can feast your ears upon this. The Sarah Palin <clears throat> battle hymn um, written by Tom Dempsey and uh, Gary McVeigh. Here we go. All right, I got a problem with it already. This is not appropriate for church. She's a cool blast from Alaska, ingrained with common sense. She's not a Harvard lawyer, but she knew what the founders meant. A cool blast from the north, 
It freezes Congress in their tracks With God and the Tea Party She's gonna take it back Sarah Palin She won't listen to their bump Sarah Palin's coming south to hunt some scum Yes, Sarah Palin uh, didn't die on the cross to save you from your sins. Um, uh, yeah, this, um, yeah, I don't, uh, listen, um, uh, yeah, here's the deal. Uh, regardless of her politics, uh, you ain't supposed to be singing praises, the praises of Sarah Palin in your church. I just, you know, I don't care where you are theologically. I know those of you on the left are sitting there going, amen. Those of you on the right, you should be saying amen too. This is an abomination. This counts as idolatry. This, you don't not know, you know, if you want to sing songs to Sarah Palin, go feel free to do so, but do it on your own time, not church time. Sarah Palin, she'll throw them all in jail. And when she gets to Washington, Yeah, that was a risky little line to sing in church. Sarah has the wisdom to walk through an open door. She is stomping out the wretches where the evil minds are stored. She will scrub the floors and sweep the riffraff into cracks. With God and the tea party, she's going to take it back. Sounds like the savior of our nation, Sarah Palin. Um, Sarah Palin, she won't listen to their bump. Sarah Palin's coming south to hunt some skunk. And why are we singing about Sarah in church again? I understand she has a biblical name and all, but... Sarah Palin, she'll throw all in jail. She gets to Washington, it'll be cold as hell. Can't wait for the third verse. Congress pat themselves on the back from some new bill they just passed. I watch as my freedom slowly runs through an hourglass. They think they spend our money better than we do. If they can talk until they're blue and old. How much you want to bet there isn't a single Democrat in that church? You know, just gave us anything. They always wanted something in return. Sarah knows. That's some fine country music right there. Um, Again, I don't understand why this is being sung in church. I mean, seriously, I got all creeped out uh, prior to Barack Obama's election, you know, with all the messianic songs that were being sung about him. And uh, you know what? I'm an equal opportunity creep out uh, person because I get creeped out when any politician is held up as if they're the Messiah. And um, I, you know, just kind of a side note here. Um the folks over at Westboro Baptist Church, you know, uh, the Shirley Phelps Roper and and Fred Phelps and the gang. I mean, those those guys actually are convinced that Barack Obama is the Antichrist, to which I basically have to say this. If Barack Obama is the Antichrist, he is the lamest Antichrist I have ever seen. Uh, 
I mean, I was led to believe in the scripture that the Antichrist would be some really wild, bad dude. And, um, you know, that he, that, um, and uh, so if Barack Obama actually turns out to be the Antichrist, talk about underwhelming. I mean, I, th- th- his biblical billing was far better than um, what he produced. Now, I think on this next verse, everyone's supposed to raise their hands and sway like they're receiving the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know, I'm not hearing anything about Jesus. That's the uh, Sarah Palin battle hymn, and um, whew, yeah, um, that one will actually be featured in the Museum of Idolatry because I, you know, again, I don't care what your politics are. Uh, your politics get left at the door at church. In fact, I, you know, I, one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, Pastor Swirlum is uh, when he was my pastor. This is a long, 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 long time ago. Um, he actually, one, one, one Sunday morning, we showed up at church and, uh, you know how in a lot of congregations, you know, up at the front of the church, you have, uh, the American flag and maybe, uh, you know, the Christian flag. Uh, he took both of those things out, uh, of the, uh, sanctuary and, uh, put them at the front door. So the idea you, 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 when you were walked into the foyer, you could see the American flag there, but, uh, his, his, ba- his logic basically was, is that, uh, we've got business to do with the kingdom of God and uh, the kingdom of God in the United States are two completely separate things. And uh, so he made a point of even getting rid of any of the symbols for the Republic of the United States from within the sanctuary because we were there to do the business of the kingdom of God, uh, to, uh, something completely different. So sad to think that the folks there at uh, at this small little church um, – were distracted away from what they should have been doing was singing praises to Christ in him crucified, uh, you know, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and singing the praises of what he has done um, rather than singing the praises of what they think Sarah Palin is going to do. So, yeah, it's this falls under the category of abomination, idolatry, and apostasy, and I do not like it when people mix... Uh, Americanism with Christianity because, uh, yeah, no, that's the the two, yeah. <sighs> Moving along, you know, I have, still haven't talked about what we're going to talk about. You know, why, why even talk about it? Let's just move to the next story. Um, I, <laughs> let me let me introduce you to a product that you've got to get yourself you, you got to get yourself a copy of. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships. I mean, who knew it was this? I mean, if you really are you are you in bondage? Are you in bad relationships? Are you struggling financially? Who knew it was just as simple as blowing the ram's horn that you know? It's bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive. Both Rabbi Michael Seitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Super. 
Supernatural for a donation of $25. Shipping. Oh, what a bargain. And handling this includes $25 for a supernaturally anointed uh, CD of the sounds of the shofar. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Seitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia. Yeah, if, if you have insomnia, all you need is this rabbi to blow the shofar over your insomnia and boom, it, you'll be cured right up there. Sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss. Oh, I, wait, wait, wait. You, you mean all I have to do in order to lose weight is have this rabbi uh, Michael uh, blow his shofar over my um, protruding belly? No way! Justices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children. Hey, if you have rebellious children, you need this hot air solution. Yeah, you really do. And it's only 25 bucks. Freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Oh, I, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, just, I mean, seriously, think about it here. I mean, I mean, if you're suffering from bunions, you've got toenail fungus. I mean, if you've got a hangnail, I mean, all you need is this anointed shofar CD. Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. You will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Uh. <laughs> I can tell you I, I'm probably going to end up um, making fun of this in, in future installments of Fighting for the Faith. And those of you who haven't heard this episode, uh, you, you, won't, you won't know what the joke is. But there it is. I mean, are you suffering from bunions, tendonitis? Do you have a hangnail? Have you actually jammed your finger while playing basketball? Um, did you fall and, and uh, trip and, and stub your nose? Do you suffer from nosebleeds, uh, gingivitis, uh, bad? Do you have hair loss? I mean, all of these and so much more. All we need to cure all of these things is for uh, the Rabbi Michael Zeitler to blow his shofar and all of that hot air filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Will The glory will fill the room and your hair will grow back. Your waist will trim up. Your rebellious children will come to their senses and say, Father, I am so sorry for my rebellion against you. I repent. Please forgive me. And all you needed the entire time was just for this Rabbi Michael Zeitler to blow the shofar. And, and all of this can be yours for only 25 dollars unbelievable it's just wow just okay you know what i'm gonna do i <laughs> before i lose my mind i'm gonna take a break we're, we're gonna go to a commercial we're, we're gonna pay some bills because it's just hard to top that if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith uh, you could do so my email address talk back at fighting for the faith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. Sissiopraphied religiosity won't save you. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap.
listening, if you think that some rabbi blowing a shofar is going to heal your weight problems or give you well-behaved children, well, you're just going to be out 25 bucks. That's all I have to say. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio program to you. I don't promise that if you support us that you'll somehow be blessed, that you'll be, you'll lose weight, your hair will grow back, or your children will be well-behaved. What I can promise is that uh, by supporting us and partnering with us, what you're doing is making it possible for us to continue to do the discernment work that we do here at Fighting for the Faith and counteract and uh, challenge the false doctrine being said in the Christian church, all in the name of Christ and Christianity that isn't. And so if uh, you find what we're doing to be important work, that you're growing from it, you're laughing, you're crying, you're learning, you're growing, then partner with us. And the way you do so is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, you know what? It's been a while since we've done some of this, so uh, let's kick it over and let's do a little bit of news. Yeah, that's right. I've actually got some... Okay, from The Guardian in the UK, late Pope John Paul II is one step from sainthood. Okay, now, the reason, there's a reason why I picked this particular story, and that has to do with the fact that um, uh, Roman Catholicism has a really, 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 really bad theology regarding sainthood. Okay, And the reason I say that is, is uh, well, if you were to take, like, you know, I've got a computerized Bible that I use. I prefer Accordance for the Macintosh. Um, I find it the 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 Accordance nine is just fabulous. If you if you are a Mac user and you haven't upgraded to Accordance nine, it's uh, spectacular. I enjoy the layout and all that kind of stuff. But uh, if you were to like you know just do a New Testament search, I'm going to search in the New Testament for the word saints. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to point something out here is is that uh, the word saint in uh, the New Testament is is not a, a f- term that is reserved for the super pious, for the super Christian. And uh, this, this is one of the things I have a problem with is, is uh, Christianity that um, somehow cr- you know, basically grades people uh, based upon their piety in such a way that, um, that they are somehow better than us and that they, you know, that they've, they have some kind of a supernatural status, if you would. And that's what's going on with the uh, with Pope John Paul II, who's been dead for a while now, but apparently they're going to make him a saint. But, see, the thing is, if he were a Christian, if he were really a Christian, he'd already be a saint. Let me give you some examples. Like in Acts chapter 9, okay, talking about Ananias and Sapphira. An- but Ananias, oh, sorry, not, uh, yeah, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man, and, oh, so it's not Ananias and Sapphira. This is talking about... Um, Ananias, who was uh, called to uh, minister to the apostle, well, to Saul after God knocked him off of his horse. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about many things about this man, Saul, how much evil he has done to your saints at 
Jerusalem. The Greek phrase there, by the way, is tois hagios. <laughs> tois hagios. Yeah, that would be the saints. Now, uh, you know, notice here in the New Testament, Ananias has no concept that, uh, you know, whoa, 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 you, you grassroots Christians out there, you know, uh, you're, you're not saints yet. You have to aspire to sainthood. Um, now, how about Acts chapter 9, verse 32? Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Acts 9.41, he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Acts 26.10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, the Apostle Paul speaking here about living saints, in prison after receiving authority from the uh, chief priests, but uh, they were put to death and I cast my vote against them. Uh, or Rome, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from our God, our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans eight twenty seven, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, Rome has this all backwards. See, what happens is, is that in their meritorious system, uh, justification is not something that's forensic. And what I mean by that is, is that it's not something that's declared by God. And so uh, they don't, you know, instead, justification is a process. And God gives you the grace to complete the process of justification. And so what happens is, is that those who in this lifetime have done exceedingly abundantly more than is necessary to complete the justification process in their life, uh, many times, uh, they, they, you know, they, these these people who stand out, you know, they they can aspire to sainthood, and uh, and what happens in Roman Catholicism is is that the saints intercede on behalf of uh, well these poor schlubs here on earth, um, and so you pray to the saints. But see, Romans eight twenty seven says this, and he who searches the hearts and knows what is in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Yes, he, yeah, there's a problem, with, and that is is that uh, nowhere in the uh, New Testament text are, are, are any Christians ever admonished, encouraged to pray to, quote, dead saints, and with the idea that saints being somebody who is, uh, you know, has aspired to this uh, next big thing. But uh, let me read this. Uh, this is uh, written by uh, staff uh, writers at Reuters, uh, and is published in The Guardian at the UK. Uh, the uh, late Pope John Paul II moved a step closer to sainthood today when his successor approved a decree attributing a miracle to him. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it's, I mean, the guy can't even breathe. I mean, he's dead. Um, he's The only thing uh, uh, Pope John Paul II is currently doing, at least bodily, is um, well, decomposing. And um, But apparently he can perform miracles now. So the uh, uh, the uh, move by Pope Benedict means that Pope John Paul II, who died in 2005 after a papacy of nearly 27 years, will be beatified. Sounds painful. Uh, the last step before sainthood, the ceremony will take place on the 1st of May in Rome. Beatified. Uh, which, again, is again, from just a biblical New Testament kind of uh, perspective, beatification uh, yeah, the, nowhere in the uh, New Testament is beatification laid out in the way they're doing it. And when I think of beatitudes, I think of what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, when I think of beatification, 
sanctification. I think of the beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. But apparently, you know, you know, Pope John Paul II, you know, he's performing miracles now, and I've actually got audio from a video from a, you know, a French nun who's uh, who claims that her Parkinson's disease was uh, miraculously. Well, listen in. And if you don't know French, I, I apologize ahead of time, but I can't really help you there. I don't know it either. But the good news is is that this story does have somebody doing some translating work for us so that we can all hear what this uh, Sister Marie Simon-Pierre says. Here, here we go. Yes, I was sick. Now I am cured. I got closer to him when I learned of my illness because he also had Parkinson's disease. So yes, I was close to him. That would be uh, close to Pope John Paul, the, the late Pope John Paul II. So, you know, she didn't pray to God. She didn't pray to Jesus. She prayed to Pope John Paul II, the, the, maybe the future saint of those who suffer from Parkinson's disease. Et j'ai pris le stylo et j'ai écrit. Et devant cette écriture illisible, il y a eu un... I took the pen and I wrote. And in front of the unreadable writing, there was a long silence. And then we prayed in silence for a long moment. And then I arose with lots of energy, saying that if one day there is a miracle, that you will believe. Pour voir si un jour il y a un miracle, pour que vous puissiez y croire. Et là, je me suis réveillée à 4h30 du matin. I awoke at 4.30 in the morning, which was not usual, because I did not sleep much because of the pain. So I was surprised to awake and surprised to have slept. Then I jumped up and I realized that I was not the same person. Something inside had changed and my body did not feel the same. My muscles were no longer stiff. I could move normally. So because of this uh, nun's, French nun's miracle, uh, you know, the healing that she experienced because she prayed to Pope John, the late Pope, John Paul II, and she experienced a miracle that this has now paved the way that on May 1st in Rome, uh, they will have a beatification ceremony and move Pope John Paul II one step closer to, quote, sainthood. Um, Yet the Bible, uh, so here's one of the questions that kind of came up regarding this is, um, can the devil perform miracles? Uh, the answer to the question is yes, and uh, and uh, Jesus even warned that in the last days that there would be miracle-working false prophets and false teachers and false messiahs, and that uh, that would they would perform miracles, and uh, if possible, they would deceive even the elect, if that were possible, and so. Um, the idea here is is that uh, you know was this French nun really healed by Pope John Paul II? Well, I don't. I seriously doubt that Pope John Paul II is running around in spirit form uh, healing uh, French nuns. Um, yeah, just there's a problem there. And and here's the deal: the theology is all off, isn't it? The theology doesn't it, it um, has taken biblical New Testament terms and hijacked them and poured different meanings into them, and now we've got this woman who says that she's so she's so much now closer to Pope John Paul the Second. Um, and yet, the last time I checked, Pope John Paul the Second needed a savior, and he wasn't the savior. 
and uh, and everybody who is regenerate and born again according to the scriptures, according to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, those are the ones whom the scriptures say are the hagios, the saints. Uh, yeah, so the theology's off here, and uh, did the miracle happen? Maybe it did, but even if it did, it doesn't prove anything except for that the devil is quite a deceiver because you trust the scriptures first. And when experience and theology and the and the theology that goes along with it contradict the scriptures, you are to reject that theology, even if it's accompanied by miracles. <sighs> what a mess. What a mess. What a mess. Okay, let's see here. Um, you know, I'm gonna save that one for tomorrow. By the way. Uh, I'm strongly considering uh, reviewing another Beth Moore sermon uh, sometime this week at Fighting for the Faith. I've uh, I reviewed one maybe a year or a little bit more than a year ago. It's it's time. It's time to do another one. So I just wanted to let you know that. Um, let's see here. Um, yes, Albert Muller. I wanted to get to this last week, but then <clears throat> food poisoning seemed to have gotten in the way. Uh, Albert Muller has a series of uh, uh, posts, articles that he's been writing, uh, The Christian Worldview as Master Narrative, and uh, we, I want to talk about sin and its consequences. This is an article written by Albert Muller, published on January 7th, 2011. Um, the, uh, su- the subheading says, it says, As Christians, we know that the world as we see it contains vestiges of the glory of God that shine through the corruption of the universe blighted by sin. Nevertheless, we are constantly reminded that the entire universe is groaning under the burden of human sinfulness. Here we go. Our experience of the world requires us to perceive that things are not as they should be. We do not experience the world of unblemished blessedness that is revealed in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. On the contrary, we experience a world filled with mosquitoes. And I think it's interesting that he started off with mosquitoes. I wonder if that's a big problem down there in Louisville. And so we have a world filled with mosquitoes, with viruses, earthquakes, malevol- uh, malevolence in the animal world. We are surrounded by the evidence of death and decay, and we see it in our own bodies. Yes, I do. Okay. Furthermore, we see the violence and sin that human beings cause and commit, and we are not only those who experience the violence of nature, but we are also ourselves uh, to be creatures whose own nature is often violent. To observe humanity is to see the undeniable reality that something has gone horribly wrong. Now, Notice how he's arguing at this point. This, you know, he's arguing from experience. He's arguing from what we see in the natural world. Now, you can figure a few things out about God in what's called the book of nature, okay? And what in in you know, this is the created world. And and Albert Muller is making a cosmological argument based upon what we see in nature and coming to the conclusion that something has gone horribly wrong. And he's correct. Okay, now in in the world at large, okay, in creation, we we learn about the power of God. Uh, we learn that you know we can see that the world is created, that there's design to it, and all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, we can see that things have gone terribly wrong uh, you know, in the forms of tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and and well, as he said, mosquitoes and viruses and things like that. That all points to the fact that. Uh, you know, we there there may be a God, uh, but um, you know that, that that nature attests to, 
but we don't know very much about him. And from the looks of it, he actually might be angry, you know, which is one of the reasons why I think many of the ancient religions had as one of their goals to placate the deities. Um, you know, so anyway, because, you know, the, the I mean, everything went wrong from, you know, the, I mean, the ancients had you know deities that took care of such common household problems as like fungus in your cupboards. You know, I, I'm not making that up. Anyway, uh, Muller continues, says, even as the Bible begins the story with creation, it immediately moves to an explanation of what has gone wrong. Again, such an account is required of every worldview and every philosophy of life must provide some explanation for why human beings are as we are and why we act as we act. That's correct. The Bible directs those who ask this question to the Garden of Eden and to the event we know as the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought corruption and rebellion into the very heart of God's perfect creation. Yep. And we're talking about a literal, historical Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, the only creature made in God's own image rebelled against him and sought to rob him of his own glory. The nature of sin is just this. We would deny the creator his rightful glory and would seek it for ourselves. Okay, as that's kind of a Calvinistic way of looking at it, but I'll go with it. I'll, I'll, I'll work with it, you know, because I, I don't, was it, this is where I got to ask the question. You're reflecting on the uh, the Genesis narrative, uh, the historical Genesis narrative. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, was that about? Yeah, actually, it was about seeking glory. Yeah, yeah. Now that I think about it, re- I'm I'm just kind of rehearsing this in my mind. What happened? These, the, you know, in fact, let me pull this out because I think it's important to uh, to go along these lines. Hold on, uno momento, por favor. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter three. That's right, Genesis. Chapter three, uh, and uh, I will be reading, and uh, you know, I, I I think what he's talking about here. Here we go. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "Well, we may eat of the fruit of the." trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, uh, neither shall you touch it, otherwise you'll die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I think this is where the robbing of glory uh, comes into it. Now, I can understand that's one way of, of, of interpreting this go, you know, going on here. Um, yeah, in a sense, the robbing God of his glory. But I think another way of looking at it is, is that uh, she was just looking to um, <clears throat> have her own glory. Um, not that she was really conscious. I, mean, maybe, I don't know if she was consciously trying to steal some from God. But anyway, you know, it, it, again, this is I'm quibbling because I'm a Lutheran and uh, and uh, Albert Muller is a Calvinist. And uh, sometimes, you know, I just I just have to sit there and go, well, OK, I can see your point. Yeah, it's, OK, yeah, I get it. All right. All right. Let's move along here. Uh, so the um, mm-hmm, OK, so the consequences of the fall were immediate and they were catastrophic. Yep. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and cut off from the tree of life. Yep. The earth, which had freely given of its fruit and crops, uh, now turned hostile, and human beings would have to uh, work with the sweat of their brow to gain a hard-earned harvest. Yep. Human reproduction was now to be accompanied by pain during labor. Yep. 
Uh, most importantly, the fall explains why human beings are no longer at peace with our Creator. Mm-hmm. God's verdict on Adam's sin was immediate. As Genesis reveals and the New Testament affirms, when sin came, death came. Our understanding of the fall and of the sinfulness of humanity is absolutely necessary for any adequate understanding of the human condition. We cannot possibly understand human existence without reference to sin. The Bible steadfastly refuses to allow us to find the cause and substance of human of the human problem outside of ourselves. And that's right. We're not victims of circumstance. We're not victims of the environment, uh, poor upbringing, or bad education, or anything like that. No, we, you know, we've seen the problem, and we be the problem. We are the problem. That's just the way it goes. So uh, let's see here. Um, okay, so um, outside of us. Instead, the Bible points directly to our individual culpability, even as it affirms that every single human being inherits Adam's sin and guilt. The complex of human sinfulness is so vast that it encompasses every individual human sin and the totality of human depravity as demonstrated in the rise and fall of nations and of the course of human history. Yep, brilliant point. Uh, the Bible's account of the human problem goes far beyond a mere explanation of human foibles and failures. In essence, the Bible turns directly to the human creature and offers an indictment of our rebellion against God. Even as Adam and Eve sought to create aprons in order to hide their own nakedness, human beings will attempt any number of creative and desperately asserted explanations for what is wrong with us. In other words, the Christian account of, huma- of humanity and human behavior runs into direct collision with all other worldviews. This is particularly evident when we compare the Bible's account of human sin with contemporary attempts to explain the brokenness of humanity by means of economic, sociological, political, or psychotherapeutic explanations, which, by the way, um, Dr. Mueller, I would point this out, is that many of these false explanations have found their way into so-called Christian pulpits, which is really a problem. Anyway, the Bible affirms the inherent good. Uh, the Bible affirms the inherent goodness of humanity in terms of the pristine goodness of God's creation as it was in the beginning. Right, but the Bible also explains that after the fall, every single human being is, in his or her own way, a rebel, an insurrectionist who is attempting to dethrone God and take his glory as our own. Uh, Thus, when we look at humanity, read the newspapers and watch the news reports, and tend to our own children, Christians must be constantly aware of what we witness is the working out of sin and a demonstration of the fallenness of humanity. Yet Yet our most direct evidence for this fallenness is what we see when we look at the reflection in our own mirror. Amen, that's right. Every worldview must give an account of what is wrong with uh, humanity and why the cosmos demonstrates so much death, decay, and apparent meaninglessness. As Christians, we know that the world as we see it contains vestiges of the glory of God that shine through the corruption of the universe that is blighted by sin. Nevertheless, we are constantly reminded that the entire universe is groaning under the burden of human sinfulness. We are unsurprised by human sin and the awful consequences of that sin. We are able to endure this knowledge because we are confident that this is not the end of the story. 
great piece, chock full of biblical truth with a slight Calvinistic bent. But nonetheless, this is exactly what we as Christians need to be have at forefront in our brains, okay? Over and again, when I review sermons that fall flat, okay, one of the ways that, one of the consistent ways that bad Christian preaching, if you can even call it Christian preaching, falls flat is when it treats sin as some kind of atmospheric condition, something that you are just a victim of, something that is can be explained as, uh, well, you uh, believing a lie, and all you need to do is learn what the truth is, and then you'll do right things, or or you're, you know, you, the, it's a problem that has to do with the culture at large, or you know, you know, no, 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 no. The reason why the world is as screwed up as it is is because of your sin, and that sinfulness that you have goes all the way down to the foundation, down deep into your black heart. Yes, there are times when God's glory and goodness shine through the creation, but the reason why everything is as screwed up as it is, from infants dying to you know, massive poverty, social injustices, yeah, that's all part of it, uh, plagues, famines, earthquakes, mosquitoes, viruses, all of that kind of stuff. The, the, the reason why all of that is happening is because of your sin and mine, because we are all, by nature, dead in trespasses and sins, rebels against God, and by nature objects of his wrath. If you can't get this straight, then you cannot correctly offer people the biblical solution, because the biblical solution is the cross. The biblical solution, the solution that God has given, and the reason why we have hope is because God came down to earth in a, a, as a man. Jesus Christ came to earth, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and lived perfectly under the law of God for your sins and for mine. His substitutionary work began the second he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Living perfectly under the Mosaic law, his perfect righteousness is given to you by faith, and your sins have been atoned for, and the wrath of God has been propitiated through the shed blood of this one man, Jesus Christ. That's the solution. That's the one-to-one. And if you don't understand the problem, the cross doesn't make sense. And in fact, if your theology, and I'm going to emphasize the word your, if your theology doesn't correctly deal with the sin problem, then your theology doesn't have a proper understanding of the cross at all and what Jesus has done for it for us. Great stuff, Dr. Moeller. And you know what I think? Um, hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to save that for tomorrow. Yeah, we're going to take our break, and uh, when we come back, um, I'm going to be doing a sermon review today of from Brian Houston's, uh, uh, you know, Brian Houston's sermon 
uh, from Hillsong down in uh, Sydney, Australia. So you don't want to miss that. And, uh, yeah, I think it'll fit in perfectly with what we just read here from Dr. Albert Muller. Now, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Going back down under. It's time for another Hillsong Sermon Review. And later this week, I hope to get to another Beth Moore Sermon Review have not exposed that woman for the Bible twister that he that she is um, enough. I think I might have to rectify that situation. It sounds painful. All right, let's cue up the music and dive right in. The good, the bad, and the, the, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon... Reviewing service. Today's uh, sermon, 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 sermon. That always seems weird saying things like that when you know it's really not. Um, uh, the thing that's supposed to be a sermon is entitled Momentum Attracts, preached by Brian Houston, 
down there in Sydney, Australia at Hillsong. Yeah, the, the ever-growingly popular um, Hillsong, which is, you know, this is not a church you want any of your friends, family, relatives, pets, um, acquaintances, um, enemies, and anybody that you could potentially know. You, you don't want them going to this church. And, and the reason why is because you don't even want your enemies going to hell. Yeah, unfortunately, this kind of preaching is the kind of preaching that sends people there because it leaves them completely oblivious as to what God's Word really says. It leaves them dead in trespasses and sins. It leaves them completely unregenerate. It, there's no power in it because, well, the cross isn't there. Uh, but it sure does um, <clears throat> do a fine job of scratching, you know, itching ears, if you know what I mean, and stroking people's egos. Yeah, that's right. This is one... Whopper of an ego-stroking sermon. I mean, momentum attracts. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have some Bible software, go ahead and look up all the big passages in the Bible that deal with momentum. You know, you should be able to find it in your concordance if you don't have a computerized Bible. Um, um, I'm kind of at a loss as to where you would go to find a momentum passage, but I'm sure that's there. I mean, because, I mean, it's not like... um, a um, pastor would ever preach things that aren't in the Bible. Uh, I do have to give you this caveat, though, that uh, in my uh, accordance, I did look for the word momentum, and I searched um, the uh, the Bible for the word momentum, and um, yeah, no, it doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. But I'm sure that this will this is going to be just chock full of good Christian pre. Um, maybe I should just stop. So without any further ado, here is uh, Brian Houston of uh, Hillsong in uh, Sydney, Australia, and uh, Momentum Attracts. Here we go. I don't like treadmills. My wife, she, she likes the treadmill. Yeah, I don't like them either, yeah. And to me, if you're going to put that much energy into something, if you're going to work that hard and put that much effort into something... I want to go somewhere. Right on, yeah. I want to turn a corner. I want to see something new. I don't like treadmills. You know, life can feel a little bit like that, can't it? Ministry, life, different aspects of our life. You can get that sense sometimes that you're putting in so much energy and so much effort, but you're going nowhere. And what I want to talk about, not just a momentum where, you know, it just seems to be one step forward and, and just good start and it just seems to always be a false start, but the kind of momentum where your life is moving, there's a forward sense of progress, that you're on a journey somewhere. And I want to believe God that this week, it's going to be the start of new momentum in people's world, whether we're talking about your church, whether we're talking about your... Yeah, where... Uh, um, yeah, see, uh, Brian, here's the problem is, is that, you know, as we were getting into our sermon review here, you know, I typed up, you know, in my computerized Bible, the word momentum and, you know, put it into the, you know, the translation of the Bible that I use. And wouldn't you know it, the uh, search results came back with a big goose egg, you know, big zero, a big nada, you know, uh, it's, um, so, um, I, yeah, uh, you think God wants us to have momentum. That's, Great and all, but where did God actually say that? Since the word itself doesn't even exist in the Bible. Now, I understand the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, and that's a 
uh, theologically coined phrase, but the, the the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is actually supported in the text. It can be rather easily demonstrated from the clear teachings of the Word of God. Now, now that being the case, the fact that the word momentum doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible like, at all, uh, maybe you should, you know, take us to all the clear passages that tell us how God wants us to have momentum in our lives. You, you know, I get momentum going, you know, when, you know, I have to kind of rock back and forth in order to build up enough momentum to to get my large carcass out of bed in the morning, you know, or to get off the floor if I fall down. Uh, you know, so I, you know, momentum's a good thing, I think. Your ministry, whether we're talking indeed about your family, your home, your marriage, your resources, whatever it is, I want to believe God for holy momentum, not just an holy o- momentum. Yeah, where in the Bible does it talk about holy momentum, Brian? I mean, can you give me a single verse? One would do. Ordinary momentum, a holy momentum to be your portion in Jesus' name. I just love that. I, you know, it sounds like, I mean, this has got to be biblical because he wants you to have holy momentum, not just any kind of momentum, but holy momentum. And in Jesus' name, too, you see, because there you go. As soon as you slap Jesus' name onto it, voila, there you that's what God wants for you. Yeah, um, maybe I should go blow the shofar and see if I can get a weight loss miracle. That idea of holy momentum. It sounds to me like something you'd say to Batman. Holy momentum, Batman. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't see that one coming, did you? Again, I believe momentum is God's will for you, for your world, for your life. Okay, now, listen, Brian, I, you know... I think you're just a generous guy there. Um, It's awfully generous of you to really want to believe that God wants to give me holy momentum, that that's his will, that I have holy momentum. Um, So that being the case, I mean, could, could you just show me from a single clear passage in the Bible where it says that it is God's will that I have holy momentum? I mean, because if that's really God's will, it's going to be there in the text, right? And you read the Word of God and you read the Old Testament, New Testament, how the Lord brought momentum into his people's world. Really, that's what he brought was momentum. Yeah, that's kind of a shallow reading of the biblical text, especially the Old Testament. Don't say, yeah, 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 what's that Old Testament about? Well, you know, let me tell you about, you know, the story of, you know, of Noah and the ark and, um, you know, and then, you know, Joshua and Jacob and, and Moses and, you know, and all those guys, you know, and, you know, the children of Israel, that was all about God bringing momentum to the children of Israel when they, you know, the Exodus, see, see, you you can't leave somewhere. You can't Exodus from someplace to, and go to another place until God gives you momentum. Yeah. See, that's, I think that's probably, um, the equivalent of totally missing the point of any particular biblical passage there in the old Testament. Again, just, you know, can you point me to a clear, you know, one clear passage that says that it's God's will that I have holy momentum. And whether you're talking in the new Testament about when Jesus himself walked on earth and you look at the way when Jesus walked on earth, that his ministry impacted so many and the crowds came to wherever Jesus was so much. So he had to actually send the crowds away. And whether you look at the new Testament. Yeah, that's not exactly an accurate picture. I mean, because here's the deal. The crowds sure did seem to be there early on in Jesus's ministry. 
And then, you know, the crowd at the end of Jesus' ministry was in the, uh, well, the crowd was yelling, crucify him. Uh, you know, that's the thing about those crowds. They sure can be fickle. Um, it seems like there was a momentum shift there. You, you see what I'm saying? Because you, you got the crowd, you know, following Jesus, hanging on every word, bringing their sick and their and they're lame and they're, and they're blind and they're deaf and they're demon possessed and you know and 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 then by the end of Jesus's ministry they they were yelling crucify him cruc there seemed to be a momentum shift there, don't you think? Church, where through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter began to preach and talk about what happened and began to talk about these things which you now see and hear. And maybe in your life right now, there's not a whole lot to see and there's not a lot to hear. Oh, wow, was that bad. Hang on a second here, you know, uh, just for the sake of context, you know, because... I'm a firm believer in context, context, context. I just thought that uh, it sure did seem like that uh, Brian Houston there in uh, in uh, Hills at Hillsong in Sydney, Australia, was um, yeah, well ripping something out of context. Let me let me back this up. Let's see if we can figure out what he's talking about here because that was a kind of sort of Bible ish illusion there. Hang on. In Acts chapter 2, Peter began to preach and talk about what happened. Yeah, Acts chapter 2. Began to talk about these things which you now see and hear. And maybe in your life right now, there's not a whole lot to see. Oh, wow. That's probably the worst mangling of Acts chapter 2 that I have ever heard. I, I should send him a cigar or something. Wow, he won the prize. Um, Wow, that was... Awful. Um, yeah, let's spend, you know what, since uh, I don't think Brian Houston there in, uh, at Hillsong in <clears throat> Sydney, Australia is going to really be doing any real biblical preaching. I, yeah, I thought I'd maybe fill in a little bit here. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 2, and let's take a look at that uh, part where Peter says, um, you know, talks about the things that are happening, you know. Um, so Acts chapter 2, verse 1, uh, I, I'm reading from the ESV. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's the Christians. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem at that time uh, Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, uh, they were bewildered because each one was hearing uh, them speak, these Christians speak in their own language. So they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we are hearing each of us in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all parts of Libya beyond uh, belonging to, uh, to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. How is it that we're hearing them tell in our own tongues, in our own language, the mighty works of God? And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, but others mocked and said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, 
Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and uh, on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Now, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, so yeah, you see... um. Yeah, there. When Peter's kind of making reference to the fact that uh, the you know the, there was something going on there, yeah, that was the working of the Holy Spirit. And what happened is, is that all the people that were in Jerusalem, they were hearing uh, the wonders of God in their own languages, miraculously by a bunch of Galileans. And um, uh, yeah, see that just that quick allusion to the scripture in Acts chapter two that Brian Houston made ever so quickly um that was a bible twist because um that that passage in acts well it's not about you or what's happening in your life no no that was about what happened back then when the holy spirit arrived on the day of pentecost and the gospel burst onto the scene if you would and the church uh went from 120 folk to three over 3,000 in one day as a result of the miraculous preaching and the power of the holy spirit that fell on the saints there in uh Jerusalem yeah see that wasn't it's not about your life and so let me back this up again so you can hear how uh Brian Houston here is uh, mangling God's word. Here we go. In Acts chapter 2, Peter began to preach and talk about what happened and began to talk about these things which you now see and hear. And maybe in your life right now... Yeah, those things that you see and hear, those were the... Yeah, you get what I'm saying. I just read Acts chapter 2 portions of it in context. There's not a whole lot to see and there's not a lot to hear. And you- yeah, that, that the, isn't about my life as to whether or not there's a lot to see and hear. Uh, you can be going through the absolute frustration of either lost momentum or a lack of momentum. Oh, no. <laughs> that just sounds terrible. I mean, can you imagine your entire life you're, you're experiencing? Frustration of lack of momentum. Oh, oh, I need a savior for that. Preach it, Brian. Give me the savior for the the one who saved me from a lack of momentum. Seriously? But if I could just start by reminding you five home truths about momentum. And the first is this. Before you get into these five truths about momentum truths in you know in brackets parentheses or invisible para you know uh you know quotation marks um 
Can you um, show me where these five truths about momentum are clearly taught from, you know, in, in context, from, you know, a clear passage in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, which of the apostles taught us these five truths about momentum? Of course, because it's it's not just momentum that you're preaching about, Brian. It's holy momentum. And, uh, you know, that holy momentum is is apparently God's will for our lives. That's what you said. And in, in Jesus' name, of course. Um, so, I mean, that, these five truths regarding momentum, I'm sure it, it, you, it wouldn't take you any effort whatsoever to, you know, to go to a clear passage and show us how these five truths are actually exegeted out of the clear teaching of the Word of God in context, right? This is when you have it. You can take it for granted and you should never presume on momentum because many times with momentum in your world, in your life, you can get the sense of invincibility and oftentimes the very things that you relax on are the things that brought momentum into your world in the first place. Uh, text, please. I don't know even, I don't even know what you're talking about. Never, ever presume on momentum. Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure. That's a good warning there. Yeah. Don't ever presume about momentum, man. Yeah. Bobby and I have been blessed over the years of really um, our married life to, across the balance of our life, enjoy incredible momentum. And that doesn't mean things have gone well for us all of the time in all areas of life. I can't even say in church life that we have momentum in every part of our church all of the time. Yeah, you, you wouldn't want to be as so presumptuous as to make such a statement. I, I agree. It sounds so, so humble when you admit that fact. But we look back across the journey, including this conference, and you can just see how God has graced us with momentum. And that really does. So God is gra- so God's grace is all about momentum. So God has graced you with momentum. Okay, great. Could you show us again from the clear teachings of the Word of God where God graces people with momentum? Uh, I find become something that... The moment, you know, you start taking it for granted can leave you as quick as it came. And the second thing that is a truth to me about momentum is that it does have a grace to it. This should never be underestimated because we can look at somebody else's world and see the momentum that's happening in their world. And, you know, you can beat yourself up over the momentum in somebody else's life. So, I mean, you don't want to have momentum jealousy. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to compare your momentum to other people's momentum and then in, and feel, you know, you know, it, you know, you don't want to do that. No, that that would be bad. But there's a grace to momentum. I just look at some of the ministries that God blesses in different, you know, areas of life. Joel Osteen was here last year. He sent me a nice little email actually today to wish us the best for this year. But, you know, when it comes to reaching unchurched people on television, uh, Joel Osteen, what he's doing, you can try and work it out in the natural, but it's got a grace to it. You know, I look at... uh, Uh, Joel Osteen. Yeah, he's got momentum all right. And I wouldn't say that's a good thing because he doesn't rightly handle God's word or properly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. 
Uh, Rick Warren, who tweeted last night that his book, which has sold however many multiplied millions, 30, 40. Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, another exercise in complete biblical futility and a mangling of God's word. Yeah, that would be, I don't think that would be holy momentum. I think that would be unholy momentum. 40 million books. And he said another language, just one language, has just reached a million, which I think was Korean. And you look at that, and as good as Rick Warren is, there's a grace to that momentum. Really, can you uh, show me that from the clear text again, please? And you can look at Hillsong Praise and Worship. You can look at other people. But if you do- No, that wouldn't be gratuitous or anything. Yeah, Hillsong Praise and Worship. That's holy moment. No, it's not. Yeah. Just understand momentum has a grace to it. Then you start... Yeah, which Bible verse says that again, sir? Looking to the right places to find momentum in your world. And the third thing, which I touched on, but I really want you to think about, is that momentum can be the most incredibly frustrating thing in the world oh uh, yeah frustrating momentum yeah Whew. again can you give me a clear passage yeah you're supposed to be actually teaching us what god's word says and you're not not if you have it but when you watch it and look at it in somebody else's life because you feel like you're doing all the right things you can feel like you you know Doing everything you can, but if you understand that it's got a grace to it. And if you take the Apostle Paul's advice, where in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, don't compare yourself amongst yourself. He actually says, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves are not wise. Yeah, you know, let's. Uh, yeah, I did not know that Second Corinthians chapter ten was all about holy momentum, and that uh, that section there in the first part of Second uh, Corinthians chapter ten was all about momentum. I had no idea. You know, let's maybe it's not. <clears throat> let's uh, take a look at what the Bible says. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Second Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I will begin at verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness uh, with uh, such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war in accor- uh, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. Yeah, see, by the way, this Second Corinthians chapter 10, actually the thing that uh, Paul's talking about here about uh, destroying arguments and, and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. See, what Brian Houston is doing here in the sermon is he's giving us a whole bunch of lofty opinions, 
and he's raising them up above uh, or against the knowledge of God that's actually in the biblical text because he's not preaching the text at all. And so here we've got these lofty opinions of Brian Houston regarding momentum that uh, really are just that lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God because he the, he's supplanting the true teaching of the Word of God with his own lofty opinions, and that's just not what we're supposed to do. So we're supposed to use the divine weapons that God has given us for the warfare that we have to tear down those kinds of things. Yeah, the the very things that Brian Houston is raising up in the so-called sermon. Anyway, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ and being ready to punish every disobedience Uh, when your obedience is complete. Now, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of, uh, of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening uh, you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So let let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, uh, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Yeah, notice that Paul here is, <clears throat> ta- yeah. You see what's going on there? When you read it in context, the the point that this passage is making isn't even remotely close to the point that Brian Houston is trying to make it make. Uh-huh. Let me read the rest of this chapter. But we will not boast beyond limits, but uh, will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were... Uh, the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may greatly be enlarged. Now, notice the influence here. The influence is for the building of, helping build up the Corinthian church into the Lord. You know, build them up in the knowledge of the faith, build them up in the truth, build them up in their discipleship. So this is an influence towards building them up in Christ. Okay. All right. So we do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may greatly be enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in others in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but is the one whom the Lord commends. Yeah, I just, um, mm-hmm. yeah, not seeing anything in there about momentum, are you? It's not wise. You can even come into an environment like this and compare. and It's human nature sometimes, but it's the worst thing you can do because you start beating yourself up about somebody else's momentum rather than finding the grace that God has got for you and living in your own momentum because I believe there's a holy momentum for your life. Again, that you know, there you go again. I'm glad you believe that there's a holy momentum for you know my life. Can you just you know show that to me from a clear passage of scripture, please? For your world, for your church, for your ministry, in Jesus' name. 
And, yeah, and just slapping Jesus' name at the end of a statement like that doesn't make it biblical. You know, just saying, you know. And the fourth thing that if I could mention it quickly, I know about momentum is often it has a trigger. And the big question is... Now, that's great that you know this about momentum. Where does the Bible talk about momentum triggers? Can you give me a clear passage of the Bible that teaches this doctrine of momentum triggers, please? Is what that trigger is, because it's not often a big shift. It can be the smallest thing. I know when we started our church 27 years ago, we started and we had momentum. It was just going in the wrong direction. And I've told that story many, many times, but we went from first Sunday to 70 people, 7-0, which, you know, I was pretty excited about that, but it quickly shrunk to 65 to 53 to 45, and nobody knew it was coming, and, you know, we only had four and a half more weeks to go at the rate we were going. And at that time when we preached in a little school hall, there were two gymnastic ropes that used to hang down. And I got a bit too excited one Sunday, grabbed one of those ropes. I was only 25 or 29, 29. So, you know, I was young and silly. Now I'm old and silly, but (laughs) I grabbed one of those ropes and swung out over the crowd, which wasn't hard because I only went back three rows and swung back again. (laughs) And uh, one young guy who was there went out and just began to tell his friends that, you know, it just makes you wonder if the reason why he doesn't actually crack open the Bible and actually preach it exegetically is because if he did so, it would um, refute and rebuke all of his false doctrine. You know, that's just a theory I'm working on there. Man, you guys should come along to our church. He said the pastor swings on a rope like a monkey. <laughs> and that week he brought a whole lot of friends and they all gave their hearts to Christ. And the following week they brought a whole lot more friends and a whole lot more. And it was a trigger. And, you know, I find to this day, if we just believe... Yeah, by the way, this story about, you know, Brian Houston swinging from a rope and, um, yeah, that's not in the Bible. So that doesn't actually count as biblical teaching regarding momentum triggers. I just want to let you know that. believe that momentum has a grace to it. And we live our lives with a trust in God and believe for a holy momentum in our lives. It could be this week. I believe for many here, it will be this week that God will just give you a trigger. And it may be the smallest little seed, the smallest little... Well, that's awful nice of you to say such things. Can you show me that in the Bible where God wants to give people uh, momentum triggers um, even this week? revelation something god puts in your spirit but it's going to give you a whole new area of momentum in your world or in your life or in your marriage or in your ministry don't believe that it's not in your marriage in your marriage in your ministry and this is all about you this isn't about jesus this isn't about what the bible teaches this is just a bunch of ego stroking platitudes of nothingness God's will for you to know the grace of momentum in your life. Don't yeah, the, the, where does Paul talk about the grace of momentum in our life? Don't settle for it. Because the fifth thing that I know about momentum is just because you've lost it doesn't mean you've lost it forever. And you Kind of like if just because you've lost your mind doesn't mean you, yeah. You can feel when you're facing a loss of momentum. We've all faced it in some area or another. Like you're doing all the right things. It can be so frustrating. You see other people with momentum in their world, in their ministry. They almost drive you crazy. That's right. You're suffering from momentum envy. Every time they talk, you know, God's opened something new. They went out to the letterbox and somebody had put something in the letterbox that was a blessing. And, you know, they're almost frustrating. But if you want to talk about lost momentum, one reasonably good example in the Scripture is Job. 
Really, the book of Job is about loss of momentum. Yeah, you, you know, I'm just sure as Job was sitting there with nothing, you know, after his family had been killed and he lost his house and lost everything that he was bemoaning the fact that he had lost momentum. You know, I was just chugging along along the highway with great momentum and and Satan came and snatched my momentum. Yeah, cuz that was the thing he was worried about losing. I'm just, you read the book of Job, I'm sure you'll see that that's not at all what Job was worried about. He didn't just lose a little bit of momentum. He lost all momentum in all areas of his life. When he's talking about his family, his marriage, his health. Yeah, that, that's not momentum. He, he, his finance, whatever it was, he lost all momentum. But you know what happened? Most of you here or many of you here know the story. God didn't just give him what he once had. God graced him with twice what he'd ever had. Yeah, he had twice the momentum after this whole thing went down. Yeah. God graced him with double momentum. Whoopee. How awesome is that? So if you're facing lost momentum and you came in here and with lost momentum, don't beat yourself up. You know? <laughs> yes, because I need a crucified and risen Savior to help me with my momentum problem. The actual definition of momentum is the force that it takes to stop it. Yeah, that's great. Did you find that in the Bible anywhere? Your job, Brian, is to preach the Word, right? Yeah. And when it comes to our world and our lives, it's often a good time to ask ourselves, what would it take to stop momentum in your life? And I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 1, because in this story... Yeah, because Exodus is all about momentum. God's Old Testament people. He gave them momentum. And this is not when they'd been set free from slavery or bondage. This is when they're in slavery and in bondage. And I guess many of you here may know the story, but verse 6, it starts by saying, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But it says the children of Israel, God's people were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. In verse 12, it says, The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. In verse 20, it says, Therefore God dealt with the midwives. And we'll get to that part of the story. It says, And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Yeah, you know, did you notice how as he was reading, supposedly reading Exodus chapter 1, that he sure was cutting some things out there. In fact, all, all the stuff he left on the cutting room floor kind of is like the important little bits, the historical bits that help set the context for the story itself for the, you know, the rest of Exodus. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, let's take a listen to what that really says in context, and we'll see what's going on here. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Yeah, remember, Exodus is part two, if you would, that began in in the book of Genesis. And here we got Jacob and Joseph and, you know, that whole story of Joseph being sold into slavery and God saving them through the big famine that occurred. In Egypt, all of that stuff, and then how Israel, how Jacob and all and all of the house of Israel 
relocated from the land of Canaan back into Egypt, and they were there for you know that. This is all. This is where this picks up. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Sounds familiar, right? Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. And increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, even though Joseph, you know, had really played an instrumental role. He, you know, and you know, and he was second in command under Pharaoh during a previous Pharaoh administration, if you would. And uh, as a result of the wisdom that God gave him, Egypt was saved from this terrible seven-year-long famine. Okay, now a new there. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, "Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out." They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You know, the, any of this sound familiar to any of you guys? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Well, why? Because God's blessing them. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, uh, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, uh, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, that's, that's all of chapter 1. And uh, when you read it in context, notice what Brian Houston was doing. is He was cherry-picking different passages and weaving this tapestry together to make it look like Exodus chapter 1 is all about holy momentum. And it's not. It sets the stage for the slavery that Israel was ens- you know, ensnared in for several hundred years and for the glorious redemption and miraculous intervention by God to burst them out of the bonds of slavery and to bring them to the promised land. If you would, the book of Exodus, this story 
from you know, of slavery, bondage to slavery, and then being miraculously set free from slavery by the outstretched hand of God and the redemption through the blood of a lamb across the doorpost, that's a picture of Christianity. It's a shadow, if you would, of the Christian life. How so? Well, it goes like this. All of us were dead in trespasses and sins. We are all born slaves to sin. And because of the shed blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, we are we are, how shall we say, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and God has miraculously set us three, free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil through the miraculous outstretched hand of God through Christ's death and resurrection. And now here, this side of the promised land, which is the coming future kingdom of God, we sojourn through the wilderness, awaiting awaiting God to bring us once and for all into the land that he promised us, a land flowing with milk and honey, if you would. It's a, it's the, all of that is a picture of, of we're born dead in trespasses and sins. God sets us free from sin. We are, we are set free, but we're not yet in the promised land. All of this points us to the Christian life, to what we experience as Christians. Yeah, but it's not about momentum. It's about something far bigger than that. But, uh, well, Brian Houston, I mean, he's on a roll about this momentum stuff. Why confuse him now with biblical facts? The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The greater the opposition, the greater the blessing. But the greater the blessing, the greater the opposition. But the greater the opposition, the greater the blessing. You're getting the point. Sometimes it's no coincidence that the two come at the same time. When you face your highest moment, you face your biggest opposition. And as I read this story here in Exodus chapter 1 about God's people, I just really want to speak the words of that verse 7 into your personal world for a moment here. Fruitfulness, increase, abundance, multiplication, ego-stroking, narcissistic, growth, (laughs) scratching, itching ears. Did you catch that little litany of of ego-stroking delusions of grandeur? Give me a break. Extreme might or supernatural strength, and the land was filled with them. Influence. Why don't you just, if you want to, if you will, just where you're seated, just... Do you think after I read Exodus chapter 1 in context that the uh, Israelites who were enslaved by the Egyptians, who whom Pharaoh ordered that their sons be m- murdered uh, at their birth, that they were feeling influence and power and momentum? You know. Straight your hands out, even just a little bit. And just really believe God for that in your life. Let's believe this week for, mo- for little triggers. that something that just sparks new momentum. If this global financial crisis somehow has just caused momentum to come to a crashing end in your life. If some other thing, if just some great, great attack has come against what to you is your world. Let me speak it one more time. Blessing. 
here we go again. Here's the the narcissistic litany of momentum that isn't even remotely supported uh, or taught in Exodus chapter 1. Talk about ego stroking. Good night. Increase. Fruitfulness. Growth. Heresy. Extreme strength. Supernatural strength. Extreme Bible twisting. Influence. Verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt. And that word arose, it literally means a usurper. Yeah, let's... um, The word arose there in the Hebrew, by the way, is uh, the Hebrew word yakom, yakom. And um, it can mean somebody who arises in a hostile sense. But that's only one of its meanings, okay? Um, there's nothing in the context here that that would make us indicate or make it indicate that the way Yahom is being used here in this uh, verse is to mean that the Pharaoh that came to power did so by usurpation. Instead, Yahom, it, it, it could mean somebody who arises after uh, being asleep. Uh, it could be talk about somebody who arises after being dead or lying, you know, those kinds of things. Somebody who rises up after reclining at a meal. Um, it could be somebody who um, who arises out of success or prosperity. Um, it can be somebody who, you know, it, who arises in a natural sense to a position of power and authority. Or it can be somebody who arises in a hostile sense, suddenly out of ambush or war. But see, that's the thing about the uh, the Hebrew word uh, yachom there is that it doesn't necessarily mean somebody who's a usurper at all. And in the context there, there's no reason for us to believe that the 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 Pharaoh of Egypt, you know, you know was came to power through dubious means. It, it, in fact, a better way of just saying it is is that then a new king, a new Pharaoh who did not know about G- Joseph, came to power. Why? Because the old kings died and. Their sons came up through the ranks. I mean, this, this, there's no reason to believe that this was as a result of some usurpation. So this was not an elected king. This was a usurper. This was somebody who took authority that wasn't theirs, who parked themselves where they didn't belong. And you look at the words that describe our opposition, which is not people. It's never people. You know, as a believer, as someone who loves God. Our- Notice now he's drawing an increase. <laughs> An incorrect uh, uh, understanding of the Hebrew here, and now he's making an application that doesn't even apply to us. The, Our opposition is never about people. It's about spiritual attack. It's about the fact that everything that you represent, if you're gaining territory, if you're making momentum, if the king... Of your gaining territory. Here we go. More narcissistic momentum. That isn't taught in the Bible. This isn't holy momentum. This is really more like satanic momentum. The kingdom of God is advancing is a threat to the devil. And if it's a threat to the devil, you should never be surprised if you get a little bit of opposition. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew in Jesus' name. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Wow, that's just profoundly bad.
The more the blessing, sometimes the more the opposition. But the more the opposition, the more the blessing. I guess you're catching the point. <laughs> In other words, what he's trying to do is basically inoculate, inoculate the people hearing this at Hillsong from those who would rightly come to them and say, you know, listen, uh, Jan, I am, I'm really concerned for you, dear. Uh, you know, I, that Brian Houston, he's twisting God's word and he's not really teaching you the truth. And immediately a light goes on and goes, oh, you're the opposition that he warned me about. Get away from me, you usurper. I know you're the reason why you're against me is because you're 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 an agent of the devil trying to keep me from having my rightful momentum and influence and power in my life. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, that's what that's about. So this usurper rose up, one who took what wasn't. Yeah, the uh, the biblical text does not say that the Pharaoh that came up through the ranks at that time did so via usurpation. You do not know the Hebrew language, sir. His and positioned himself where he didn't belong. And you know, what I find interesting about this, it goes on verse 9 and says, he said to his people, look, God's people, the purposes of God are more and mightier than we. Come let us, listen to what he's talking about. Come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight up against us and so go up out of the land. He talked about them and he talked about us. He talked about we. He talked about us. Yeah, notice here that this passage that he's quoting doesn't say anything about holy momentum or any of the five things he said. He's just twisting it to make it appear like it does that and it doesn't. Us, the reality is verse 12, it says he was in dread. So it wasn't actually about God's people. It was actually about himself. And if you just understand sometimes, if momentum is under attack in your world and in mm. your life. Oh, yeah, momentum is under attack. Yeah, because it's all about me and my momentum. Yeah. That's why Jesus hung dead and naked on a cross, right? Yeah. And especially if what you're doing is really something that's going to take ground for the kingdom of God, just remind yourself, it's not about you. I mean, we can all make mistakes and, you know, maybe have a lack of wisdom and find that we reap what we sow. But if we're talking here about just the fact that your life is going somewhere, the, the dream that God put in your spirit. The dream that God put it. Yeah, what Bible verse says that again? Yeah, none of them. If we're talking about that, and for that dream to come true, is going to mean incredible momentum in your world. Well, believe me, it attracts some spiritual opposition. No matter what. Yeah, you see, the reason why Pharaoh was a usurper and why he was against the people of Israel is because all of the children of Israel that had God-given dreams for influence and power and momentum, and he was just suffering from momentum envy, and so he had to put a stop to that. Oh, man. Form it comes in, whether it comes and just it seems like, you know, everything is seized up when one time there was just a flow, there was a flow to your business, there was a flow to what you do, and all of a sudden it just seems like it's going, it can be so frustrating, but let's remember, it's not about you. I mean, 
right. It's, yeah, that's right. It's not about you, but this whole sermon really is about you and your holy momentum. Oh, brother. And, oh, and your God-given dream and vision that he put on your heart. Uh-huh, yeah, right, yeah. It's not about me. <laughs> yeah, classic double talk. It's called projection, isn't it, when people do that to each other? Sometimes you can project onto somebody else what really is about yourself. And when you understand it's not about you, I think you don't let discouragement rob you from stepping up and continuing to believe that God is God. That he's What are you even talking about? Where is any of this taught in the Bible? Seriously. He's true to his word, that he loves you as much as he loves the person next to you, that the best is still ahead of you in Jesus' name. Yeah, you sound like Joel Osteen with an Australian accent. Uh, he loves you and the best is still ahead for you. Yeah, you know what's ahead of me? Death. Good night. <sighs> Closer to it today than I was yesterday. Yeah, that's up there. I see it's up. It's, it's, uh, it's ahead of me. That momentum is the will of God for your life. There's not one person in... Yeah, where again does the Bible talk about momentum being the will of God for my life? What are you even talking about? Because all of our momentum, your momentum, my momentum, anybody's momentum, whether it's holy momentum, unholy momentum, sanctimonious momentum, or even just... uh, sacrilegious momentum. It doesn't really matter. All momentum will come to an abrupt and grinding halt the moment that you die. It'll be like, you know, a a car driving at 60 miles an hour and hitting a wall. All of that momentum, well, you'll get crushed and dead and and, all of your momentum for your life will come to an abrupt end. Yeah, so your best days are still ahead of you. That's the thing you get to look forward to if Christ continues to tarry. Yeah, just... And here that God wants to bless more than another person. God is God. And God is a God who, when it came to those who served him, it's not as though they didn't face attack or face opposition and sometimes have circumstances that were dire. But you look at the grace and the faithfulness of God. And I mean, we're talking here about Old Testament people. Here we are, New Testament people with a new covenant and a better hope and a better promise in Jesus' name. And we can look at these things through the power of Christ. And the cross, and if that's so, then don't you. What exactly does the cross have to do with any of this momentum talk? Settle for anything less than the word of God fulfilling the purpose of God in your life in Jesus' name. This week, this week, fruit. Oh, this is just pure ego stroking narcissism. Wow. Fullness, increase, abundance. Oh, here we go again with the narcissistic litany of momentum. Growth, multiplication, supernatural strength, heresy, false doctrine, Bible twisting, Satan, God given influence. Is it catching your spirit yet? Yeah, no, no, nothing's registering in my spirit except for that you are a complete and abominable apostate false teacher. You're you're a rank heretic, sir. Nobody who calls themselves a Christian should be listening to you. You know, he goes on, this king, this pharaoh. He says in the next verse there, he says, let's afflict them with burdens. I might just read these verses. Yeah, please do. In verse 10, where he spoke about we're going to have to wise up. 
We're going to have to deal shrewdly. It actually literally means let's outwit them. You know, the amazing thing is when we live by godly wisdom, wisdom builds the house. The worst thing you can do if your dream is being attacked right now is start to fight. Whoa, whoa, you just said it wasn't about me. Then you turn around and say, if your dream is being attacked. Oh, seriously? Oh, no. Quick, grab the guns, dude. My dream is being attacked. We got to circle the wagons, man. I don't, I don't want those hostile natives to, like, take my dream, man. Circle the wagons. Load the guns. And don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes, dude. Yeah. With the same human wisdom, or oftentimes the outsmarting type mindset of the spiritual forces that want to oppose you. You know, we can so easily bring ourselves to try to fight spiritual challenges with natural means. But as soon as you do that, as soon as you do that, you forget what actually is going to bring supernatural momentum, holy momentum into your life. So let's not do that. And he goes on in the following verse and I'll read it quickly. He says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And so there it says, They were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So the opposition was, let's afflict them. And reading what that word means from the Scriptures, it literally means to browbeat. It literally means to look down or to depress. And I know in the crowd this size that there are people here and you've come in here and, you know, you have that, 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 that potential, whether or not literally to be depressed, though some definitely hear that, but just to have that sense of your dream being squashed and if you understand. Do you have the sense that your dream is being squashed? <laughs> squashed. I, w- I took my dream out for a walk because I wanted to, to, to see the sunrise and, and, to, and to see what a pretty day it was. And then it, it, it dropped out of my hand and it rolled into the street and then my dream got squashed. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Stand. That's the way spiritual opposition works. It literally means to look down, to disdain. It's got the sense of superiority. He ever sometimes found that when you try to step out in the will of God for your life, that what it comes up against is sort of an attitude, a mentality that has a superiority about, looks at disdain. You know, maybe it's because of your faith in God and, and it could be like an intellectual. Maybe people look at the folks at Hillsong with disdain because they realize that they are narcissistic nut jobs and that none of this stuff has anything to do with biblical Christianity. 
superiority like this disdain that you in 2010 would be foolish enough to put your faith in Jesus and to trust God. It, it can be that kind of sense. But all I know is there are people here and what's in you, it fills you with anguish and would try to depress you and sort of give you that that push down, and, and, and the opposition we face. Again, never about people. I'm talking about spiritual opposition. If you just see what's behind it and realise that the goal is to, with this sense of superiority, eat your confidence away and just have you questioning your own call and question the... But it's not about you. Yeah, just keep that in mind. No, 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 it's not about you. Oh, no, no potential of God fulfilling his word in your life. He said, let's afflict them with burdens. And that word, it's obvious what it means. It means let's load them down. You know, one of the things that if we live by godly wisdom, I would encourage every pastor, every leader, every believer, every visitor, every person in this room to do. If you find yourself encumbered, loaded down by the cares of this world, You know, the New Testament tells us to lay aside every weight and then the sin that so easily besets us. But we can get ourselves into situations and make choices, even as church leaders and pastors, we can get into situations where, you know, we've lived in a way where we're encumbered. And if I could encourage every person here to just determine that you're not going to allow momentum to be ruled, to take hold in your life, by making the kind of choices that has you living all the way out to the edges, whether it's in debt, you know, it's so easy to be in a hurry and to get our, our, our churches into this overwhelming debt and the result of it sometimes can just be to load you down. And I pray for you that God can just work supernaturally and that that, you, that, that sense of being encumbered, that it can just lift off your life. I love the way, in, again, the Old Testament, you know, the Word of the Lord for God's people, when it came to God's purposes, was don't, Live your life. It says, when you, when you harvest your field, don't harvest all the way to the edges. Keep some on the edges for the poor. So it literally was, you know, don't just live right out to the edge. Keep something on the edge to be a blessing. <laughs> there you have it. It just comes to an abrupt end. Wow. That was the... Miserable, Ab- absolutely narcissistic, ego stroking, scratching, itching ears, Bible twisting, just complete gobbledygook. Yeah, like I said earlier, you, folks, if you know anybody who thinks Hillsong United is uh, is you know some kind of a godly organization or that they're producing great spirit filled, spirit led things that uh, will edify the body of Christ, you've got another thing coming. Hillsong United should be avoided as if it's the spiritual equivalent of HIV and will cause whoever comes in contact with it to contract a spiritual immunodeficiency syndrome that will ultimately end in their spiritual death and send them to hell. That's what you need to be doing. Man, that was wow. Okay, 
grab, you know, compose myself here. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. <laughs> you get to pay for the you know, us to help get us do this kind of stuff because without your financial support, we couldn't do what we're doing. So if you'd like to partner with us financially the way you do so, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says uh, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Wow, that was bad. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can uh, send it to me. Uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com is my email. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook and leave your uh, your feedback on my wall. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>